We've been looking through the Old Testament book of Judges. And we've said every single week that it is a series of true stories that are written with the intent to show God's people God's grace and to therefore call them to faith and obedience. And we've gone through all of the major judges that we've looked at all semester long, and there's still five more chapters left to this book. What are these five chapters here for? Well, for the next two weeks, we're going to look at them. The whole point for these last five chapters is basically the, the whole point of verse 6 in the passage that you have in front of you. That in those days, there, uh, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. So the picture that you see it is not the chronological next step. This, these are actually flashbacks. The last five chapters are flashbacks in the day, in a normal life, of Israel, And the picture is unbelievably dismal. So for the, the thing we're going to look at tonight is what it looks like to do what's right in your own eyes spiritually, which is what chapter 17 and 18 is about. And 19 through the end is what it looks like to do right in your own eyes morally. We'll look at that next week. So all that said, let's actually look at this passage in Judges chapter 17, and we'll consider it together. Okay? Judges chapter 17, verse 1, you can follow along with your little handout there, or if you brought a Bible, you can look at it as well. Judges 17, verse 1. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. And then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. And when he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother, and she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idol. And they were put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. This is God's word. If you would pray with me before we consider it together. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we would ask that you would speak um, to us and um, despite me I pray, Father, that you would send your Holy Spirit in these next few moments to attend to your word because we are coming into this room in all kinds of different conditions. Some of us are just exhausted from the, uh, the semester. Some of us feel beaten up with guilt and the track record that we have hanging over our head and our shoulders that we can't let go of. Some of us come into this room feeling just bored with Christianity and, and just wondering why they even decided to come out tonight. Some of us are excited and ready for the summer. And Father, there, for everyone in here who is in a million different places, Father, I would ask that you would draw close and uh, open up your word to us tonight. And that would be our prayer. We'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I finally got around to watching the movie Lars and the Real Girl this week. I've, I've, it's a great indie movie. People have been telling me I need to watch it for years, and I finally watched it this week. And uh, someone was making fun of me in the back because, because it stars Ryan Gosling, and apparently I've referenced Ryan Gosling the past, like, six weeks now. So I've got a man crush on Ryan Gosling, apparently. But Ryan Gosling plays this guy Lars, who is this middle-aged, 
unbelievably socially awkward guy who's, who's lonely, kind of is this hermit. And uh, uh, basically his mom died when he was really young. And his father has just recently passed away. And so he, here's this man who's lonely, very awkward, and yet is carrying around tons and tons of pain. And so what he does is he goes on the internet and buys a life-size blow-up sex doll that he dresses up in clothing and tells everyone that this is a wheel-bound missionary named Bianca. <laughs> who is his girlfriend. And so he goes around with this wheelchair, with this, this blow-up doll, telling everyone this is his girlfriend, Bianca. And so everyone basically in this, in this little community that he lives in, because they love him, they start playing along with, with the, the, the fiction of it. And so he'll take her to church, and the, the, the ladies from the church will, you know, like, welcome her, and like, oh, how are you, Bianca? I'm so glad that you're here. And, and uh, this is actually one of the only movies that I've seen where the church is actually presented in a, in a positive light. And uh, so, so they'll, they'll take Bianca, like, away from him and, and run errands with her. Um, the doctor is even in on it. And so, uh, you know, he'll take Bianca to the doctor, and she'll, you know, check her blood. Uh, blood pressure, and uh, basically, you know, everyone is in on this, you know, they're, they're playing along because they love Lars, and apparently Lars and Bianca seem to have this very wonderful, odd relationship. Now, if you take that idea out of the movie, and you, you transpose it into our spiritual lives, you can see that it's very possible to have a heartfelt, genuine relationship with a fake and a plastic God. It's very possible to have a real relationship with a fake God and to have everyone around you encouraging it and reinforcing it. And so the question tonight is, how do you know? How would you know if your spirituality is fictitious or if it's real? How do you know that you have a relationship with a real God or or a fake God? And those are the two questions I want to ask tonight and explore from this passage. How do you know if your spirituality is fictitious, that it's a sham, and how do you know if it's real? Here's the first question. How do you know if your spirituality is fictitious, if it's a sham? Well, there's actually two ways that you can know that this passage lays out for us, and I'll show you where I get this. The first way that you can know that your spirituality is fictitious is if it doesn't change your heart. That's the first way. You'll know that it's a shame if your heart doesn't change. And here's where I get this from. This story that we just read is about this man named Micah and his mother. Now, Micah in Hebrew literally means who is like Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal covenantal name of God. So his mom named him this very biblical, you know, spiritually sounding name, who is like Yahweh, with the, with the understanding of no one's like Yahweh. He's... he's Unique and transcendent. No one's like him, which shows that his mom is a you know, devoted follower of God, of Yahweh. And then if you look at verse uh, 2, we see her blessing her son. And again, she's using that name. That's why the Lord is in all caps there. That's just what's translated of Yahweh there. She's using orthodox, correct language. She's blessing her son. If you look at verse 2 again, uh, Micah is confessing his sin to his mother. That's a good thing. And in verse 3, she decides to take 1,100 pieces of silver and consecrate it to Yahweh. In other words, she she wants to dedicate a big chunk of money to the church. 
And in verse 5, Micah has this shrine and he makes an ephod. Now an ephod is uh, a priestly garment that is meticulously described in the Old Testament. So what we see is he's, you know, they're following, they want to follow the Bible. The Bible says, you know, if, you, if you're a priest, you've got to make this priestly garment. So, okay, we've got to do that. So what we see here, you put all these observations together, we see a very sweet Christian household. But if you look behind the exterior, if you look behind the external, here's what we see. Why is Micah's mother blessing him in verse 2? The only reason she's blessing him, we find out from the first two verses, is that he has previously stolen the 1,100 pieces of silver from her. He has straight up robbed his own mom. He's heartless. He's stolen this money, and he overheard her utter a curse. Now, in the ancient pagan worldview, when someone utters a curse, they were calling down like a magical uh, evil spirit to come and do harm to the person, whoever, you know, did whatever they didn't want you to do. And so Micah overhears his mother uttering this curse, freaks out because he doesn't want this evil spirit tormenting him. And so he confesses, brings his mother the money. In other words, his whole, his whole obedience is motivated purely by self-protection. And now that she has this money, uh, she, she says, okay, out of gratitude and dedication to Yahweh, I'm going to give this to a silversmith to make an idol out of it. In other words, I'm going to try to, I'm going to thank God in a way that he has clearly said is evil and wrong and she's participating in idolatry. And then what does she do? If, of, of the 1,100 pieces of silver that she gets back, in verse 4, we see that she only dedicates 200 pieces of silver for this idol project. So what happened to the other 900 pieces? She keeps it. It's like saying publicly, I'm going to dedicate $1,100 to the church. And then when the offering plate goes around, she you know, only puts in 200 and secretly keeps the rest. So what do we see here? We see externally, they're using all the right language, doing all the right things. And yet internally, we see greed and superstition idolatry, we see a mess. We see a contradiction. The sweet Christian household is living a complete contradiction. It's reminded me of a Michael Scott quote from The Office. You know Michael Scott, the regional manager for Dunder Mifflin? This is actually a pretty terrible quote. Uh, But here's what he says in one of his monologues. He says this, You don't call retarded people retards. It's bad taste. You call your friends retards when they're acting retarded. <laughs> now, obviously, that's offensive. Obviously, I don't endorse his language at all. But what, what is he saying? He is saying, in, in one breath, this is wrong, this is offensive, this is bad taste. In the same sentence, he's doing the exact same thing. This is exactly what's going on with, this, with these people. We, we see them living this contradiction. On the outside, externally, they're doing all the right things following all the right behavior, and on the inside, we see a mess. We see a complete mess. Their religion has not changed their heart. Their spirituality is fake and it is hollow because it has not changed their heart. Now, I know of a lot of students at App that know all the right Christian language. And if they go to a Bible study, they know all the right answers. Come to RUF regularly, maybe even go to church regularly, and yet... 
their religion, their spirituality is fictitious. It's hollow. They do not have a real spiritual life because on the inside, they are full of pride and self-righteousness and bitterness. They think they're superior to other people. They're critical. They're condescending to people that aren't like them, that aren't as good as them. They, 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 they never pray just to be with God. They only pray to get stuff from God. And their spirituality, their, their relationship with God is a sham. It's not real. It's not changing their heart. Likewise, I know of a lot of students um, that know the right Christian language, know the right answers, do Christian stuff, and yet basically live double lives. Live double lives. Where, where they come to the Christian gatherings go to church, do Christian-y stuff, and yet outside of these contexts live very morally ugly lives where they drink too much, mess around, their language is filthy, basically living complete contradictions. And they think that they are Christians because they punctuate their life with just religious activity here and there. But really they're here to have a good time. And they, but that is, they, they don't love Jesus. They don't want to serve Jesus. They don't want to obey Jesus. They just want Jesus to kind of be sprinkled on their agenda to appease their guilt, to appease their conscience. That, that, is, a shallow, that, that is a religious shell, a contradiction. Jim Gaffigan is one of my favorite comedians. If you've listened to his stuff, good for you. <laughs> um, he has this bit on camping that you can find on YouTube is five minutes. He does this whole bit on camping where he just kind of says how much he hates camping. And he, you know, he says, well, I'm what you would call indoorsy. And, uh, you know, it's, you, you've got to check it out. But what he says in there, there's one line in there that completely struck me. He says, um, where is it? If, sorry, I can't find it on the sheet of paper. <laughs> if it's so great outside, why are all the bugs trying to get into my house? <laughs> If it's so great outside, why are all the bugs trying to get in my... If that's such an awesome thing, why are they all trying to get in here? And I, I think the same question could be asked to people who claim to be Christians, who grew up in the Bible Belt, grew up going to church. The same question could be asked to us. If Jesus really is so great, why are we living like everyone else? If Jesus really is so awesome, why does that reality not affect our life? Why does it not show up in our life? That's the first way that you can know that your spirituality is fictitious, that you, that you have a real relationship with a fake God, is if it doesn't change your heart. Here's the second way. You can know that your spirituality is a sham if it doesn't involve the local church. Let me show you where I get this. Look at verse 4. Micah sets up these idols in his house. His, his house has become a place of worship now. And it says in verse 5, he installs his own son as a priest. Now, in the Old Testament, there were very meticulous rules that if, if a priest is going to be installed at the tabernacle, at the temple, this is a very public, very formal ritual that was done. And he's like, ah, that's, that's complicated. I'm just going to install my own son as a priest in my home. So what do we see here? We see him basically probably thinking something like this. You know, I don't, I don't want to have to go all the way to Shiloh because that's where the temple was. That's where the tabernacle was. That's, that's really inconvenient. It's far, far away. Furthermore, I have to associate with, I've talked to all those people that I'm kind of embarrassed to be associated with. And it's really inconvenient. So I'm just going to do worship here. 
at my house. And as the author says in verse 6, this is totally screwed up. This is totally backwards. You know, we live, in a, we live in a day and an age where the phrase, I'm spiritual but not religious, is common. I think there's Facebook pages with that dedicated to it. And I think what that basically means is, I like the idea of being spiritual, whatever that means, but I don't want anything to do with organized institutional religion. You know, basically, I, I want to do what I want to do. I want to worship how I want to worship. I want to live how I want to live. And what we're doing is basically applying this value of Western individualism and just applying it to the realm of spirituality. Now, the Bible says from beginning to end that you cannot have a real relationship with the real God apart from a relationship with the church. Now look, you you can sleep in on Sunday mornings. You can. You can sleep in, and uh, when you wake up, you can put on some Hillsong and worship by yourself. You can download a great sermon. You just can't call that Christianity. You just can't call that Christianity. Now, I know some of you are thinking that I'm sounding like a freako weirdo up here right now, and I understand that. Because the question is, okay, what is the big deal? What, What is the big harm how is that? Why is that such a big deal? Why does the Bible make such a big deal about this that we've got to be connected to the church? Why is me alone in my room doing internet church such a problem? That's not hurting anybody. Think of it like this. You, know, you, don't, you, you may not know this about my wife, Catherine, but she's a bit of, um, a, bit of a health freak. Now, that's, that's probably too strong of a term. In fact, uh, she's not really a health freak. She's a health freak in comparison to me. Uh, actually, no, I'm probably just a slob in comparison to her because that's probably more what it's like. Uh, because she, basically all I'm trying to say is that she likes to eat healthy <laughs> and, uh, and light. And, um, you know, she doesn't enjoy, you know, Taco Bell like, like I do. And so if I wanted to surprise Catherine on a date and I wanted to take her out and treat her to a nice dinner and I took her to Daniel Boone Inn, where you know you get like 800 plates of mostly fried food that's either covered in gravy or butter. If, if and you know, you just leave and you feel uh, wrong. <laughs> if I took Catherine there on a date, she, she would say, Matt, you, you don't get me. You don't understand me. God is a trinity. Which means that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one essence. Which means, in other words, he is himself a relational community. He is a community. And his whole agenda is to create and form a redeemed relational community called the church. To renew and to change the world. So let me ask you this. How can you have a relationship with a God who is himself a relational community? And who loves Relational community. How can you have a relationship with that God by yourself? It makes no sense. It would be like, it's, it's like saying you don't get him. You don't understand him. It's like taking Catherine to you know, Daniel Boone in. It's like it does, something is wrong here. So what's the application? The application is that you and I need to be deeply connected and threaded to the local, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Christian church. Now, I know that that doesn't doesn't answer all of your questions. 
In fact, that probably raises a million more. And that's why I'm here. That's why Catherine's here. That's why Jen and Milo are here. We want you to come talk with us about these things. We've got great resources we can give you about that issue. But here's the point I'm trying to make. From this passage, you see that you can know that you have a relationship with a false god, a fake plastic god, if it doesn't change your heart and if it is not connected to the local church. So how do you know if you have a relationship with the real God? If your spirituality is real and authentic? That's the, that's the last question I want to look at. Here's how you can know. Let's look at verse 6. Let me read it again for us. This is really the key. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Now that little sentence is going to repeat multiple times for the next five chapters in the book of Judges. So we're, just, we're going to spend more time on it here in a few weeks. But for now, what I want you to see is that the author's assessment of the cesspool of Israel's spiritual condition is due to the fact that there's no king. There was no king ruling. Everyone did whatever they wanted, and that was the problem. What they need and what we need is a king. Now, I know some of you are pushing back on this and, and asking the question, okay, my man, uh, what does a king do? A king basically just creates edicts and lays down laws and enforces these laws through fear of punishment or through punishment. But Matt, you know as well as I do that creating new laws doesn't change anything. If you create a law, don't murder, that doesn't stop people from murdering. So what difference does it make if it's a government that's making laws or if it's a king that's making laws? What's the big deal? Glad you asked. Here's why. We don't need a king that we just comply our behavior to just because we're afraid, just out of fear of punishment. We need a king that is so captivating, that is so attractive, that we actually want to serve him, that we want to honor him, that we want to obey him. And so as we've seen, one of the major themes that we've seen throughout the book of Judges is that these local little tribal leaders, these judges, are not enough. Gideon, Samson, Ehud, all these guys, if you've been with us this semester, we have seen over and over and over, they are not enough. They can't save their people. They can't protect their people. They cannot fix the problem of people's hearts, which is utterly selfish and utterly sinful. They can't deal, they, can, they, they are inadequate. And so as the Bible unfolds in the Old Testament, you come to this next section, which is all about kings. This is where you meet King Saul and King David and King Solomon and on and on and on and on. And you find out they are woefully inadequate as well. They can't fix the mess. And so the plot line of the Old Testament is charging forward with this massive unanswered question. Who is going to come and be the king that we need who can fix us and who can fix the world. And the Old Testament ends with that question hanging with no resolution. And 400 years later, Jesus comes on the scene announcing the inauguration of a kingdom, what he calls the kingdom of God. And he lives this astoundingly beautiful life where he's healing people, he's forgiving people, he's serving people, He's speaking the truth to people. He's defending the oppressed. And because of how remarkable his life was, people looked at him and they recognized him and they identified him as the king, this long-awaited king that we've all been waiting for. And so they called him things like this, king of kings and lord of lords. And they were right. 
And so what verse 6 is, it is a foreshadowing. It is a movie trailer looking forward to King Jesus himself. And so you will know that your spirituality is real and it is authentic, that you have a real relationship with the real God if you are relating to Jesus as your king. Which means that he has to be supreme in your life. He has to have control of your life. He sets the terms for your life. Now, he oversees and he sets the terms for your dating relationships, for your career, for how you spend your free time, for how you spend your money. Now, I know that may make you squirm. And that will be offensive and that will be troubling. Unless you understand this. That Jesus does not want to just relate to you merely as a king relates to his subjects. But also how a husband wants to relate to his bride. Until you have experienced Jesus as not just your ruler, but, but as your lover. This change, this, that is what changes everything. Uh, about a week ago, I was feeding my 18-month-old daughter, Zoe Kate, breakfast. And I was feeding her an Eggo, a blueberry Eggo waffle, because <laughs> I'm a slob, and I'm training my children to be slobs as well. And so um, she's eating the waffle fine, and I want her to taste maple syrup. She was eating it fine, but I, just, I wanted to treat her with some maple syrup. And we have in our fridge pure homemade maple syrup that the guy who made it gave it to us as a gift. This is not like the crappy store-bought, basically just corn syrup that they dyed brown. This is pure maple syrup. And so I pour a little bit out on her tray right there, and she, she wants nothing to do with it. She's like repulsed by the thought of syrup. And I'm trying to talk her through it. It's like, okay, you know, just, just take a little bit of your waffle and dip it in there. You'll, you'll like it. Trust me. Nothing. So I take a little bit of her waffle and I dip it in the maple syrup. And then, you know, I hold it up to her face and she's, you know, resisting. And so I took it upon myself because I realized if she can just get a taste of it, she will want it. So I, I did what anyone would do, which is to dab her face with the maple syrup. And of course, I was, I was gentle, I was soft as I dabbed her face. And she starts crying and freaking out. The syrup, the syrup is on her lips and she's crying like, Dad, why, why would you assault me with the waffle? Bawling, syrup on the outside of her lips. And, and I just waited. I just waited because I knew what would happen. Eventually, she licks her lips, stops crying immediately, and wants more of the next one. Vic- victory for daddy. But yet, um, one, one more example of why Zoe Kate's going to need counseling when she gets older. But as I, saw, as I sat there and just watched her crying with the serve on the outside of her lips, it, it just, that image kind of got burned into my head. And it got me thinking that that image is the image of so many of us who claim to be Christians, grew up in the Bible Belt, where we have God, we have Jesus the King all around us. He's even on our lips. We talk about him, we go to Bible studies, we learn about him, and yet we have never personally tasted him, never personally experienced him. He's been on our lips. He's been disconnected from us, but he, he hasn't gotten in yet. We haven't personally experienced him yet. So how do we do that? How do we personally experience him? 
want to mention two ways and then we're done. First way is that we look at his grace. The first way that we personally experience Jesus as a king is that we look at his grace. King Jesus comes and showing you how much he loves you, how intimate he wants to be with you by living this perfect life and then dying this barbaric death on a cross. Now, how does that make any sense? What is, what is going on there? What he is doing is that he is receiving the death sentence, the death penalty that hangs over every one of our heads because we are rebels. We are rebels against our king. And what Jesus is doing out of pure, infinitely costly grace is he has taken on himself the wrath and the judgment that rebels deserve. It is falling on him so that it doesn't have to fall on you and it doesn't have to fall on me. And when you see that, until you see that Jesus died on a, that Jesus is dying on a cross for you, not, not just for sin in general, not just as an example, but he is dying for you in your place. And your thought should be, that should be me up there being crushed under the weight of God's wrath. And yet it's not me, it's him. Jesus is purely out of pure grace, dying for the very people that have rebelled against him. When that gets in, when that's just not on your lips, but but it's not just something you talk about, something you know about in in a theoretical, cerebral sense, but it actually gets in and goes all the way down to the heart. That's what does the second thing. You actually start to live for his glory. So you look at his grace, And then in response, you live for his glory. Now, what does that mean? This means that Jesus, as your king, sets the terms for your life. And and no longer does that sound oppressive. No longer does that sound restrictive. But that actually sounds freeing. Because you know that he is good. If he was this good to do this for you, he's this good that you can trust him with your life. You know that that the terms that he sets for your life is for your good, it's for your welfare, welfare, it's for your deepest joy. And so in response to his grace, what begins to happen is that you begin to say, how can I serve you? I want to serve you. I want to obey you. How can I make my life about The business of making my king more beautiful, more attractive. I want more people to see how amazing he is. I want his reputation to grow. That's what it means to live for his glory. And don't you see, when these two things come together, how that undoes our fake religiosity. Because it's no longer just behavioral modification where I'm stopping to do this and I'm starting to do this because I have to or I feel guilty or I've got to climb some stupid spiritual ladder that we've created in our Christian subculture but that you actually want to. It's not just external. It's, it's, it's inside out, where your heart, your wants are different. You want to serve him. You want to obey him. And this, and this frees you from being isolated. This actually draws you into being connected to the church, to other people that are gathered around this king as well, saying we are all about coming together, worshiping him, and advancing his kingdom, not ours, his let me wrap up with this. Here's how the movie Lars and the Real Girl ends. Spoiler alert. Here's how it ends. You know, Lars, Ryan Gosling, has um, Bianca, his doll girlfriend, and one day at his office, there's a girl in his office named Margot, the real girl, and she asks Lars out on a date. And as soon as that happens... Lars, you know, tells people that, that Bianca's getting sick. 
And so she starts getting sick and she's dying. And so they actually take her to the emergency room and the doctors, you know, are hooking her up with IVs and like the oxygen mask on this doll. And eventually she dies. Bianca dies and the church puts on this funeral for Bianca and everyone's, you know, like genuinely sad over it. And the last scene of the whole movie is that they're at the, um, the burial site. They've just buried Bianca, the missionary. And it's, and it's uh, Lars and Margot, the real girl, standing side by side at the graveside. And, and Margot is getting ready. She's telling uh, Lars that she's, you know, she's got to leave. She's got other stuff to do. And, and he kind of interrupts her and he says, hey, do you want to go on a walk? And she very excitedly changes her plans and says, yeah. And that's how the movie ends. What happened was, is that his relationship with a fake and a plastic doll got displaced by his relationship with a real human being. And he was liberated from the fiction and freed to experience real love for the first time. The invitation for you tonight is to be liberated, to be freed from your relationship with the fictitious God that you may be serving and to experience real love. And the way that you do that is that you look at the grace of King Jesus poured out for you on the cross and in response to that, you live for his glory. That's it. You look at his grace and live for his glory. And that's the invitation. Let me pray. Father, we would... We would pray that you would give us eyes to see. Give us faith to behold the cross and to say that that should be me up there, undergoing the torture, undergoing the punishment. And yet, Father, because of Jesus, we, we are freed. There is no condemnation for us, and we, and we are finally liberated to experience real, sweet joy and fellowship and a relationship with you. And Father, I pray would that transform us from the inside out to live for your glory, to serve you, to obey you, to want to serve you. We need your help because we're selfish, we're prideful, we're arrogant, and we don't want a king. Change us from the inside out. That would be our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.